Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a second year doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford. I'm based in the UK. I study rumors of epidemic disease in 17th century North America. So essentially, I study how people thought about and spoke about diseases. I'm particularly interested in the role of disease in colonial contexts, and today I will be talking about what is commonly called Spanish flu. I'm Maya. I'm American, but a permanent resident of Canada. I have a master's in public health, and my work focuses on the sexual and reproductive health of adolescents, infectious disease, and monitoring and evaluation. My primary area of focus is Sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm extremely interested in reflections of colonialism in disease and public health. Today I'll be talking about COVID-19. In this first episode, we'll be looking at Spanish flu alongside COVID-19 and discussing whether our current situation is at all comparable with the pandemic of 1918. So once upon a time, Angelique and I lived in the same city and went to the same school at McGill, and we've missed each other ever since. Since we both study disease and the way societies interact around disease and how people engage with them, but one in the past and one in the present, we thought we had a lot to offer in terms of comparing and evaluating the two. Mm-hmm. And also just sort of asking the, the question uh, that I ask myself every single day, what can the study of historical diseases really bring to our study of current ones? Yeah. So the obvious choice for our opener is the thing that brought us here, and by here I mean our couches for the last three weeks, which is COVID-19. I'm going to talk about this a lot in my historical context section, but nobody was talking about flu for about 100 years. So all of a sudden to have people talking about Spanish flu as the obvious comparison for COVID-19 is kind of wild because even like two, three years ago, you could bring up the term Spanish flu and have people ask you what it was, which is, which is crazy. Like if you type in to Google right now, Spanish flu and hit news, you're going to see like hundreds of thousands of articles. And that's exactly what I did. And I just like, I don't know. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Well, and 50% of them are, it's a perfect comparison. And the other 50% are, you should never compare the two. So (laughs) I think it's an interesting (laughs) dynamic that we're going to explore. Yeah. There are only like limited comparisons we can really draw between COVID-19 and Spanish flu. And the thing that we're going to see over and over again is that studying historical diseases actually tells you quite a lot about its context rather than our own. And I think it's also just sort of frightening how you look at what happened in the past when, I mean, I think it's obvious we have had scientific advancements, advancements in technology, advancements in government and the way we operate, or at least changes, if not advancements. And yet there's still so many striking similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's jump right in before we get into the two diseases, just a couple of uh, language things that I think are important. Semantics, key. Um, there are a lot of different terms that can be used to discuss the spread of disease. An outbreak is when there's a sudden increase of a disease in a small area. An epidemic is a sudden increase of a disease in a population. A pandemic, which is what we're experiencing now, is an epidemic that's spread across countries or even continents. So obviously two really good examples are the Spanish influenza and COVID-19. And those are the two we're going to dive into. 
it's also worth knowing that when a disease becomes endemic, that means it always has a certain amount that's present in the population. A good example of that is chickenpox. And one of the real concerns about pandemics is that they're going to become endemic within a community. So people are worried that we're always going to have some version of COVID-19 in the same way that the flu comes back every winter. So on to Spanish flu. Brief intro to Spanish flu. You have three waves of the disease from March to November 1918. So you've got, real quick, spring 1918, fall 1918, winter 1918-19. The virus was a novel influenza A virus, so H1N1 of either human or pig origin, but it was only sequenced and identified for the first time in 1997. Influenza was first described by Hippocrates, and you have a lot of accounts of it in 12th century Europe, and it was quite common. The name influenza comes into usage in English in the mid-18th century from the Italian. Influenza di Freddo, which is not how you pronounce that, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Influence of the cold wind is what that means. Wait, I love that. Just a quick (laughs) sidebar. Did your parents warn you about the draft? Yes, they did. It's a very like Eastern European-y kind of thing. Like you have to cover up from the draft. And I just love that this name is the draft. I think it's just an older person thing. Like, don't forget to wear your hat. Speaking of Eastern Europe, we have a precursor pandemic. So in 1889, influenza breaks out in modern-day Uzbekistan in what is later called the Russian flu. So this is commonly known as the first modern pandemic because it was, like Spanish flu, spread by railways and steamships in these highly developed transportation networks. And a lot of scientists attacked this new Russian flu in the lab, they determined that the cause of the disease was a bacterium, uh, which they called Haemophilus influenza, and that was commonly accepted as the cause of flu. But now we know that that's not the case. It is viral rather than bacterial. It's an RNA virus, so not the same. Oops. (laughs) Death's not. I mean, they were trying their best. (laughs) Uh, Another really important part of the story is that uh, when Spanish flu broke out, the world was at war. This is World War I. On the Western Front, the Allied powers faced the last German offensive, and it's called the Spanish flu because Spain was not involved in the war, and so its media outlets were not censored. So it was the only country really reporting openly about uh, about the Spanish flu. So they got stuck with that name they were not super not super happy about i can't imagine they were it's just that's such an interesting little tidbit to me yeah it is not so yeah it's estimated that about a third of the world's population was infected and it's estimated that between 50 and 100 million people died of spanish flu wait sorry that's a difference of 50 million people sorry that just registered because the pandemic was so woefully forgotten A lot of scholars looking over the sources kind of overlooked the flu aspect and were a lot more interested in the war and the political history that was to be told about that. Hmm. So yeah, the estimates keep being revised upwards, basically. So a little bit about the virus itself. 
It happens in any crowded environment because it's transmitted by coughing, sneezing, anything through various spit and mucus. Um, and even, to- <laughs> you know, mucus. all that nice stuff. And even talking allow the- allows the virus to infect others via the respiratory system. Um, less commonly, the virus can be transmitted on surfaces or objects. Those are called fomites. Learn that from the movie Contagion. Great film. <laughs> Would not recommend for anyone's isolation viewing pleasure, but it's a good film for after. And also don't touch your face. I was literally touching my face. Every time I've looked at that note, I have been touching my face. I can't I knew you would be. You got to train yourself. I do wash my hands a lot. So yeah, because the virus is so uh, quickly transmitted in any crowded environment, the wartime preparations created a serious problem because... Populations were being concentrated into barracks, crowded transports, factories, cities. So anywhere reasonably densely populated could support an outbreak. But the fact that most of the world was at war meant that it was just so much worse than it could have been. Places like Philadelphia had it really badly, um, same as Boston. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they were like pre-industrial revolution, but I, I seem to remember reading that at this point in time, they were in the perfect situation to um, support a seriously terrible epidemic. Love it. Great. And they do, actually, repeatedly. And I get that when I uh, look at my smallpox stuff. Just repeated episodes of smallpox and other crowd diseases. Okay, do you want to hear about some symptoms? Yes, as gross (laughs) as possible. Yeah, I love your your little instruction in the outline. The grosser and weirder, the better. Great. I can do that for you. Thank you. (laughs) So you'll remember that I talked about three waves. And between the waves, you have a pretty variable kind of array of symptoms. So in 1918, influenza was obviously already known to people. It was really common. It's a virus that's constantly circulating. But it was known as something mild, mild, common, and normally really dangerous to only the very young and the very old. So like standard, kind of like today. Classic. So your standard flu is characterized by coughing, sneezing, vomiting, nausea, fever, listlessness, aches at its most severe. Uh, The 1918 pandemic included symptoms such as cyanosis, which is when patients turn blue because their lungs are not getting oxygen into the bloodstream anymore. Um, It included extreme body pain, which made a lot of physicians think it was like dengue fever or something, and bleeding from the mucous membranes. So when I think of the bleeding from the mucous membranes, I think of that first season of Downton Abbey, where like Lady Grantham starts like bleeding from her eyeballs, and then Lavinia, the really sweet but really annoying fiancé, is just like, I'm fine, and then she dies. (laughs) Spoilers! If anyone wanted to watch Downton Abbey season one, I'm so sorry. Um, I think that came out like 10 years ago. If you were going to watch it, you would have watched it. I I watched it when I was at McGill. It can't be that old. Wait, wait, no, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. When did we start? Like 2010? Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Another nice sidebar for you. I went into Oxford City Centre for the first time basically since all the craziness kicked off. So since like March 14th, it's been so, it's been a couple weeks. And it was like a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Um, there, it was a ghost town. I was going because like 
some of my friends are self-isolating because one of their flatmates has symptoms. So they asked me to do a booze run for them. Necessities only, yes? <laughs> yeah. On the way home, I obviously decided I was going to pick up some beer for myself. And I go to the till and <laughs> the cashier asks me immediately for my ID. And she looks at the birthday, looks up at me and says, you don't look your age. <laughs> Keeping in mind that the drinking age in Britain is 18. (laughs) Oh, that's kind of nice. So youthful. So youthful. I don't look 18. Come on. No, you don't look 18. No, I do not. I was having a youthful moment. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Right, Downton Abbey. (laughs) The other thing to note about the Spanish flu pandemic is that flu normally kills the very young and the very old But this time around, and particularly in the second wave, the flu is not just infecting, but killing otherwise healthy young adults. So I've seen that age range be between like 16 and 37, something crazy like that. The most productive section of society, basically. So let's turn to COVID-19. So COVID-19 is caused by a virus called the coronavirus. Um, And obviously we know a lot more now than we did when the Spanish flu was going around. Um, But coronaviruses, this family, are called corona because when you look at them under a microscope, they're all spiky around the top or on the circle part and they look like a crown. Corona means crown in Latin and all viruses are named in Latin, as we well know and can't pronounce. But we will keep trying. (laughs) We'll try our best. You can't stop us. You couldn't if you tried. So... Coronaviruses can cause a huge range of things. Sometimes it's the common cold and sometimes it's SARS. There's everything in between. And then, of course, our most recent pandemic, COVID-19. COVID-19 is named as such because it's a coronavirus and it first appeared in 2019. And it's a novel version of the disease, which Angel used that word at the beginning too. Novel just means it's brand new. Also worth noting is that there's a difference between the name for the virus and the illness that you get. Would you please elaborate on that for me for a second? The other names that they're giving it, the more scientific ones, like um, SARS, COVID, that is the virus. And then COVID-19 is the disease that you get from it. Cool. Thank you. The origin of this disease is actually really crazy because now we can do the sort of retroactive RNA analysis and um, historical mapping of where people were and who they got it from and how long they've had it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens with a lot of these viruses is that they don't just appear in humans, right? They essentially have to mutate to be contagious from whatever animal or person has it in the first place. And Uh, Coronavirus specifically is zoonotic, which means that it can be transmitted from animals to humans. It starts in animals. But most animals that we would get it from aren't around the right other animals or humans for it to mutate properly and then transmit to people. But in China, there are these things called wet markets where live animals are kept for fresh, fresh butchering. And they include wild animals that should be under protection, like tigers or i don't know badgers probably pangolins all sorts of things um um wait Mm. Mm. what is a pangolin (laughs) a pangolin (laughs) is a really rare animal that basically looks like an armadillo cool thank you there's like pointy and kind of armored sounds super cute they're pretty cute 
Um, <laughs> and apparently people eat them. So <laughs> I mean, what don't people cool. eat, I guess. In these wet markets, which really are like wet, like we are talking bodily fluids of all kinds. Animals are in, <laughs> I mean, they're in really close quarters and they're stacked on top of each other and things drip and spray and, you know, I mean, they're wet and diseases get spread from one thing to another. So right now, I think they think that it went from a bat to a pangolin and from there to a human being. And it's really interesting that now our technology allows us to sort of map how it got from point A to point Z or whatever point we're at right now. Not sure it does much because we kind of already knew that the coronavirus was zoonotic and was coming from certain animals to humans and yet we still had another round, but that's a different question. This specific virus started in Wuhan, China, but because it's a pandemic, obviously it's now present in almost every country in the world. Because it's so new, there's still a lot we don't know about if it's going to become endemic, if it prefers cold weather or hot weather, and what areas it's going to be most common in. And like I mentioned at the top, it might even just become a seasonal thing the way we get a new version of the flu every year, and then we have to develop a new vaccine and, you know, try not to spread it around. The climate thing will also be interesting right now because one of the things we know is that like many viruses or bacteria even, if you put it in a freezer, if you freeze it, it just preserves itself. I have a thing okay. that you're really going to like. Tell me. <laughs> There's this book that I that I, uh, I got out of the Bodleian. It's called The Demon in the Freezer. Ooh. And it's about bioterrorism. Ooh. And it's really cool. And I think you'd really like it. I'll, I'll stick it in the bibliography just in case okay, good. you're interested. Sounds yeah. perfect. Yeah. And that's sort of one of those things like this weird post-apocalyptic. Like, what if the ice caps melt and there was a virus trapped in them? And then... Okay. <laughs> this is exactly what happened with Spanish flu. Some guy whose name I do not recall went up to Alaska to a Native American burial site of like, I think there were like 80 people in the village at the time and, and like everyone except three people died of Spanish flu. Perfect. And because they have permafrost up there, they were actually able to get tissue samples from inside the lungs. And that is what they use to sequence the virus. That's crazy. I did not. That is an amazing fact. That is really cool. Okay. So similar to influenza, the virus can enter your body through your ears, nose, mouth, and then make you sick. It's also a mucous membrane type of situation. Um, and it's transmitted by the same coughing, sneezing, droplets in the air. And there's so much we are still learning about how long those droplets stay airborne and if it's just the heavy ones or if they can stay in the air a long time after you're gone. And at first we thought they were too large and heavy and so they fell to the ground. And now we think that's not true anymore, right? There's a lot that's not known. Um, so yes, that means you can get it from another person if you're standing too close, which is why we're doing social distancing, but it also means that you can get it from surfaces that those droplets landed on. So some studies done of other not novel versions of coronavirus, which we think are directly applicable, show that this virus can live for a really long time on surfaces, especially plastic and metal. So the best thing you can do is stay away from each other, wash your hands all the time, and don't touch your face. And like, I'm looking at Angel sorry. touching her face. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. We can't stop. If, it's so hard to break the habit. If it makes it any better, I did recently wash my hands and count to 20. Perfect. I too washed <laughs> my hands, but mostly because they smelled like garlic. <laughs> Listen, whatever your reasons what are. Hear, Maya. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So, yes, we are still learning a lot. It is new. We first started talking about this as a community essentially in January and April just started. But there are a lot of people that it has become more and more clear are asymptomatic. And that is really scary because I'm sure that this was true during the Spanish flu and we probably just didn't really know that much about transmission and we don't have that many records because nobody's going to be like, this guy wasn't sick, but now everyone he knows is. Like, (laughs) hard to say. What we are seeing now is that there's a huge percentage of people, especially young people, especially young males between 25 and 50, who... They don't show any symptoms. So they could be shedding the virus. In fact, they could be coughing all over you or just breathing in your general direction and be sick and not even they would know it. Those who do have symptoms are really similar to the symptoms you get for Spanish influenza, which is kind of why people started off being like, well, it's just like the flu, which it's not. But they typically seem to be fever, dry cough, bad headache, uh, lots of congestion, sometimes diarrhea. Um, a lot of people who describe having the congestion say that it feels like you are drowning in your lungs, which is just so horrifying. And then it can also, those who are elderly, immunosuppressed, that kind of thing are really susceptible to it because it can also make you get other diseases, specifically pneumonia. And that makes it similar to some other pandemics like HIV AIDS where you have trouble differentiating who died from the disease itself versus people who died of related causes, right? So if you got COVID-19 but you died from pneumonia, there's a measurement issue there because some people will measure one and some will measure the other. So I have a small rant about that that I'll save for later about like how we're measuring people who are dying of the disease and what it means. So that's where we're at in the modern day and those are the diseases. And let's dive right into some more historical context. Great. So let me take you back to 1918. I'm transported. As we talked about before, World War I created the perfect conditions for the spread of flu. So it did that by concentrating people in barracks, factories, cities. However, another aspect that I didn't touch on before is that the war effort also robbed communities of their experts and health professionals. So doctors, nurses, and other people needed for a public health crisis on this scale were actually, for the most part, deployed. Basically, there's an unequal distribution between the resources at home and the resources on the battlefront, and that really had a huge impact on civilians' ability to survive. By the time World War I comes around, the world is actually more interconnected than it ever has been before. This is the fastest that people, that goods, that information had ever, ever traveled. Wartime equals interconnected. Yes. Uh, so, little crash course about World War I. I hope I get all of this right. This is not, not at all what I normally study. But broad strokes, um, the important thing that I want you to remember is that when it comes to World War I, This is not just a war between Britain, France, Germany, Russia. This is a world war because all of these powers are empires. So when we talk about the British army in 1914, what that means is citizens of India, Australia, Canada, Newfoundland, New Zealand, and South Africa, as well as large parts of Africa, the West Indies, and the Far East. So like in 1914, the British empire occupies a quarter of the known surface of the globe. The sun never sets. (laughs) Likewise, Germany also has an empire. So this is why it's the first world war. 
1914, which is when the war starts, hostilities are on the rise between all of the world powers because they're competing for resources and an arms race ensues. An archduke gets murdered and everyone uses that as an excuse to declare war against each other. Cliff Notes version. So for our purposes, war between two major powers was no longer a war between just two countries. It involved all of their imperial holdings, which is why it was such a mess. So this is the first truly global pandemic, and it's riding that wave of novel global interconnectedness fueled by advances in transport and communication. I'm going to go back to the waves and describe them in a little bit more depth. So you have the first wave, which basically spans March 1918 to August 1918. And the first recorded incidence of it is in the American Midwest. So about 100 soldiers become ill with influenza at a camp in Kansas, so Camp Funston. And within a week of them becoming ill, about 500 are sick. This is first mentioned in the official weekly public health reports on April 5th, so within a month. By May, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers are being deployed overseas every month, every single month. Oh my God. And then from June 1st to August 1st, over 200,000 out of 2 million British soldiers stationed in France could not report for duty, so 10% of soldiers were off sick. It's ironic, if not tragic, that this thing ended up being called the Spanish flu when all these first recorded instances were in the United States. And it's uh, reflective of our current attitude somewhat. Mm -hmm. Except in 1918, they have the excuse of wartime. Whereas right now, I don't really know what the excuse could be. (laughs) No offense. (laughs) I am not offended. Great. I'm going to allow the American amongst us to have the rant about (laughs) that. So in the second wave of Spanish flu, that is from September to November 1918, that is a far more lethal wave, uh, which is responsible for most of the deaths uh, that are attributed to the pandemic. So this wave emerges also in the U.S. at Camp Devens, which is outside of Boston. By the end of September, Camp Devens is reporting 14,000 cases, which is a quarter of the camp, with 757 deaths. And um, what's interesting about this particular wave is that within hours of admission, with standard, standard flu symptoms, so like coughing, sneezing, maybe a bit of nausea, patients are turning blue. Mm. There is straight-up cyanosis, extreme body pain, bleeding from mucous membranes, So spurting out of noses, dribbling from mouths, ears, eyes, and apparently autopsies showed that all internal organs were affected and that muscles were torn or degenerated due to all of the coughing and that the lungs looked so bad that um, the effects were compared to mnemonic plague. Oh, no. Mnemonic plague has about a 90% mortality rate and is a really scary thing. So I doubt they made that comparison lightly. So the third wave is winter and spring 1919. World War I ends, soldiers demobilize, and people are celebrating the end of this really long and bloody conflict. And... Tragically, it creates a resurgence of the virus and many more people die as uh, soldiers demobilize and go back to their respective home countries. Like, oh my god, yay, the war is over, we've been waiting for so long, everything can go back to normal. And Let's hug and kiss and I'll get sick. I actually started crying earlier today because I was reading the story of this like 95-year-old guy who's part of the Spanish regiment that freed Paris right at the end of World War II and he just died of COVID and I was like, 
Imagine surviving all of this. Every time you tell me these stories, my immediate response is to touch my face. I'm, I'm really struggling with that. <clears throat> right. How was the disease treated? Well, like, it wasn't. Right. Um, because, there, <laughs> because there was no cure. But social distancing was a measure that was put in place. A lot of public gatherings were cancelled. Quarantine was imposed. Municipalities were forced to report cases of flu Sounds when they familiar. occurred. Really important to note that um, in most places around the world, the reaction varied from community to community. So, like, certain cities were a lot better off because they were learning from their mistakes and immediately canceling public gatherings and, like, trying to get a handle on the situation with the only means that, that they had, which was, like, quarantine, basically. Also eerily similar. Um, also eerily similar. It was found that nursing was actually the most effective treatment for flu. Slightly problematic because of how contagious the flu was. So a lot of nurses and other public health officials, when they were present, were also getting sick. Because of wartime, the absence of medical personnel seriously affected recovery rates. So in New Zealand, for example, a third of their doctors were overseas serving in the British Medical Corps in 1918 and a quarter of its nurses. In fall of 1918, remember, most deadly wave, the scary one with the bleeding. The United States experiences a severe shortage of professional nurses because of the deployment of large numbers of nurses to military camps in the U.S. and abroad, and the failure to use trained African-American nurses. No. Ugh. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Shoot yourself in the foot for your ideals, oh why God. don't you? Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Philadelphia is hit hard with the viruses. More than 500 corpses await burial, some for more than a week. Cold storage plants are used as temporary morgues. A manufacturer of trolley cars donates 200 packing crates for use as coffins. There's this really cool resource also through the CDC. It's called um, the CDC Pandemic Storybook, which is a collection of first-person accounts so it's just like a wealth of That's primary really cool. resources and we um, will link to it in our resources yeah. but what you see in that is is um a record of how behind communities were in burying the corpses like they were properly snowed under That's with the dead analogy. like there's a no honestly <laughs> There's this recurring image of corpses stacked like cordwood, which is really, really disturbing. But you know you're going to yeah, go look. Probably. You know you are. Yeah. Maybe one more, one more fun time fact for fun you. Fun time, she says. Um, <laughs> fun time. This is my life, okay? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I have a really high threshold for gross diseases. I'm just not that bothered with it anymore. Like, I study smallpox. I don't Fair care. Enough. New York City reports a 40% decline in shipyard productivity oh, yeah. due to flu illnesses in the midst of World War One. New York City is shipping all this stuff out to help troops in this, like, major world war. And nearly half of it just, like, goes away because people are too sick. Mm. That's actually incredible. I'm sure it had a comparable effect on the economy as what's happening now does because the whole factories and businesses and whatever are just shutting down because people mm-hmm. just can't. Well, yeah. I mean, like, you need the manpower. Otherwise, like, those shipments are not going out. Those services are not being yeah. performed. Like You have to wonder what kind of effect anyway. that had on the war as a whole. There's a lot of debate about that. And um, some people do argue that the end of the war was precipitated by Spanish flu because 
they just couldn't handle the casualties from that. First biochemical weaponry. <laughs> not the first and not the last, I promise True. you. Let's talk about global transportation networks for a second. Transportation networks are so important, and the fact that they're global is also so mm -hmm. important to any analysis you want to make of that, particularly maritime travel and railways that existed pre-World War I. These were constantly being developed to support troop deployment and uh, facilitate uh, transport through the supply lines as well. So... As I said before, this is the fastest that people, goods, and information have ever traveled. And I'd say that that's another similarity for us today. This is the fastest that anything has ever traveled, which is probably why coronavirus has been so successful in infecting so much of the globe. Parallels. Love them. <laughs> I wanted to give you some global examples because I feel like when you study Spanish flu, you tend to stay in Europe and in the US. A couple of the major ports that were being used at the time is Freetown, which is a ma major coaling station in Sierra Leone, Brest in France, a major point of access and supply route for Allied troops, Boston, which is basically where troops were traveling from to Europe. In the fall of 1918, troops are traveling home from the Western Front by rail and ship to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the US, Canada, India, and So I'm beyond. sure each of those ports was just like a huge hotspot for the disease. Yeah, basically. So yeah, you, you have an account of a hospital ship uh, that's full of flu patients that docks at Karachi, which brought the second wave of the disease to Bombay, um, which eventually suffered 17 to 18 million oh, deaths, which is wild. That's a lot. That is a lot. Returning troop ships bring the disease to New Zealand as a result of demobilization. People just coming home. The outbreak in Japan came from a ship arriving from Siberia. And then once that ship arrived, the flu spread inland by their really well-developed rail and steamer services. In the African continent, the disease spread a lot more slowly than in Europe or North America because their transport links were not super well-developed, but their mortality rates were still comparable or higher. Another super important thing to highlight is that outcomes for Spanish flu are dependent on local conditions. So uh, reactions to the outbreak varied locally and could make a massive difference to uh, mortality rates and the, the yeah. spread I mean, of the I disease. I mean, I think we're going to see the same thing. And we are seeing the same thing oh, now. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. In the Gold Coast, every single population center is affected. Even if the flu progressed more slowly once it reached the Gold Coast because of those um, slightly less developed transport links, uh, the impact was just as deadly because they were operating with like a skeleton public health apparatus and even a political apparatus that was not where it should have been. And then you have a sort of opposite example with Japan, where people were encouraged to practice self-help, and that meant bed rest mm -hmm. and traditional medicines. And you'll recall what I said about nursing and how important that could be for right, survival right, right. rates. And a lot of people hypothesize that this is the reason that they had such a low mortality rate compared to the rest of Asia. Apart from nursing, I wanted to come back to the idea of quarantine. That's a measure that is, that is used over and over again when you don't have an effective treatment for a disease. It is the first port of call when something goes wrong. And quarantine, if I'm not mistaken, originates in the 14th century and dates back to the Black Death. So that massive pandemic that wiped out like mm -hmm. a third of Europe has been used pretty much ever since 
to try and keep people safe and keep people from infecting each other. It's like an enforced social yeah. isolation. I mean, that's what's happening now. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's the staple for when we're not sure what to do. And you know what? It's effective. The first ever conference on influenza took place in 2003. They published a series of papers about the effect of flu around the world. And in their introduction, they call the Spanish flu the best documented but least known pandemic I love that. in history. Yeah. I love that too. And it really gets to the heart of this issue of wartime and the problems it poses for contemporary treatment of disease, but also the opportunities it provides for historians because this was such a bureaucratic wartime effort. We have all of these sources. They just haven't necessarily been used to uh, study right. flu before. But it's interesting because there were a lot of positives that did come from it in terms of science and development, right? Which you would think would lead people to mm-hmm. be like more commemorative. Yeah. But who died and how? Right. Somehow, like, flu victims become, become less important because... Uh, they would much rather remember a fallen soldier yeah. than someone who just died of a disease that we don't really know what to do with. Yeah. And that kind, of, that kind of speaks to this idea of scientific advancement as a national pride. In the aftermath of the flu pandemic, as you mentioned, scientific advances are proceeding apace and nations are taking pride in their medical achievements and vaccination campaigns are starting to take place. So poliomyelitis, for example, the government was actively pursuing that program of vaccination and framing vaccination as something you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. It was a point of pride in the U.S. Uh, in... How the mighty have fallen. Exactly. It was a point of pride in their technological prowess. And similarly, when, when smallpox became the first disease to be eradicated in 1980, I think in a lot of ways we kind of became convinced that we had conquered disease well and i think you kind of see that now as people are framing this virus as a as a war right like it's this idea of like conquering and fighting but i can see how if you didn't have a solution to something like the spanish flu you might not want to talk about it because you couldn't win that battle right like there's a battle you did win in the form of world war Mm one but there's a battle you also lost on the home front because you just couldn't do anything and that's traumatic it's hard that's a hard thing to spin pr wise now, I mean, not being able to treat a virus or any type of disease will make you feel powerless. It'll make anyone feel powerless. Yeah. I think we all kind of feel powerless right now, whether we're actively striving to cure that disease or not. It feels as though things are spiraling out of our control. And I, I think maybe we're better placed than we ever have been before to really understand how it must have felt to go yeah. through the Spanish flu epidemic. Sorry, pandemic. <laughs> My bad. Semantics. (laughs) You know, I think we're used to being like, okay, well, if you get sick, you go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's hard not to. Well, okay, so that's a good segue. Like, let's talk about how this has changed over time. Like, how are we dealing with this today? Because obviously this is a pandemic of totally new proportions for most of the world, especially in North America and Europe. It's been a really long time. Like, people have panicked, but it's a long time since we've had to really change the way we live our lives to deal with an illness and uh, to be honest because we don't have a treatment or vaccine yet a lot of the same measures are being taken now as they were in 1918 we are closing schools we're preventing public gatherings we're encouraging social distancing or quarantining depending on your situation and that's 
even knowing what we know with all of our social advancements and scientific advancements. And in the same way that in 1918, you had transport ships and troops coming home and this big cross-border movement of peoples, um, you've got the same thing happening with the transmission of the disease globally. So planes are bringing this disease all over the world. Um, there are more open borders. We have the ability to cross the world in less than a day. And so this disease can spread so fast. Before even community transmission became a thing, you were getting new cases you know, daily just coming from somewhere else. And I actually today watched this incredible graphic of they located all of the people that were like partying at spring break on a specific beach in Florida. And they follow their cell phone data as they go home at the end of the week. And it just goes all over the United States. You're like, Jesus, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) all right. I love all those videos of the uh, of the frat boys at the beach being like, if I oh get Corona, God. I get Corona. Going back a quick step, I said the word community transmission. Another quick definition. There are two kinds of spread, stage one, stage two. Stage one is somebody who got sick from like the original source, essentially, and then brought it back from somewhere. That That's why borders were closing. Stage two transmission is much more dangerous and it's community transmission, which means those people are giving it to each other. And unless you have really good active surveillance and the ability to say, well, this person was around these 10 people and then they were around these 30 people, then it's really hard to sort of shut it down, right? Because it's being spread within the community as opposed to one individual being sick. The other thing that's happening now that was happening in 1918 is stockpiling. Otherwise otherwise known as hoarding. Hoarding. And people are going hoarding. crazy about it. And we don't seem to have run out of much yet, although there's some very weird vibes about like you can't get flour and toilet paper, which I really don't get. Like diarrhea is not that common of a symptom. Why toilet paper? It's the worst possible thing you could run out of. Except for food. Anywho. <laughs> okay. Another thing that you were talking about, the Spanish influenza is this really well-recorded disease, but people are only starting to really interpret it and use that data in a specific way. Today, every country, sometimes even every province, like here in Canada, is measuring their infections and their death rates differently. So right now, we actually also have a lot of uncertainty around how many people are ill because our data probably shows the amount of people that were sick two weeks ago rather than what's happening now. And then in places like Ontario, you've got nearly a week-long backlog and you're only testing people who fit certain very specific criteria. So if they're essential health personnel or they've been traveling or they're showing very, very strong symptoms, then you get tested. So there's probably tons and tons of people out there who are sick. Um, Are you seeing an uptick in the number of tests that are being carried out? Because like all of a sudden overnight, We've had like 534 deaths in the UK or something like that. And I was speaking to my flatmate and he was saying that that could also be a reporting issue. Like they're just carrying out more tests. Therefore, they have more data available. And therefore, it looks like the mortality rate is spiking, but it's possible it might not have. So the tests probably wouldn't affect the mortality. It would affect the morbidity. So another definition time, your morbidity is the amount of people that are sick. And do mortality is the amount of people who are dying. Um, so the morbidity rate would probably go up a lot with testing. But it's also, again, it's indicative of people who are seeing symptoms and are coming in and saying, I need to be tested now. But yes, the more tests you do, the more you'll see. But it's almost never going to be representative in places like the UK, Canada, United States, where we just can't get to everyone. And then this is also something that I mentioned earlier. People who are dying of COVID or COVID-related symptoms 
is different from country to country. And I, I would have to check, but I believe the United Kingdom is one of the places that's recording people who die of, say, like pneumonia because they had COVID as a COVID-related disease. Mm-hmm. So some places, if you just had COVID and died, that's it. That's the only thing that their numbers are representative of. It makes it really hard to compare these numbers because you know Mm -hmm. there's so many differences in the way they're reported and then you've got countries like not to point fingers but russia where there's just sort of like for the most part everything is totally fine don't worry about it until the very last minute when they're like never mind shut it down i saw this really good i'm pretty sure it's a gag article about um the russian government releasing tigers onto the streets to keep people indoors I thought I thought that was the funniest thing I'd seen in a while. And I'm very, very much on board with my ridiculous content right now. I'm with you. I mean, and that raises a whole thing about mental well-being. And that's something that we didn't talk about much, you know, before the last, what, decade? And this is a really big moment of like, this is hard on people. It's hard. And, you, you know, there's everyone who's like, oh, great. I finally got all this time to do everything I meant to do. And then you sit down, and you're like, absolutely not. I can't do it. It's it's hard with COVID. We don't know a lot. The same way people didn't know in 1918. And it's not like I would want to suggest that there haven't been huge advances in science and how we study and treat disease and how we communicate with each other and blah, blah. Obviously, things have changed a lot in the last hundred years. But, you know, yeah, we're doing faster and better. But there are all these crazy similarities that we've already started to touch on with this global pandemic with an unknown virus because similar to 1918, we don't have a treatment and we don't have a vaccination yet. And we're trying our best, but who knows how long it could take. And along with that, as with any disease, there are hugely vulnerable groups who are really disproportionately affected. And right now, that looks like the elderly are going to be the most severely affected, along with people who had pre-existing health conditions that could affect respiratory health. Somehow, so far, it seems like most kids are actually going to be pretty asymptomatic. So they're definitely at risk, but it doesn't seem to be as disproportionate as it can be in other illnesses like malaria or smallpox or whatever. But like you said, like there, this, this last, the second wave of the Spanish flu really affected these like young, able-bodied people. And while we aren't seeing that huge uptick, we are seeing that they are big carriers for the disease. And that's a big problem because also who wants to go out and hang out with each other and has the most mobility is people in that age range. Um, I mean, except for (laughs) we're smirking at each other because like this is not that far off from the normal day to day. (laughs) To be fair, we've been doing this on and off for like, what, six years? (laughs) How how often are we really in the same country? And you're still not that often. You're still the first person I text in the morning. The last person I text at night. Oh, I miss you. Okay, move on. I miss you too. So something that we obviously could have predicted that's happened over and over again, not just with the Spanish flu, not just with COVID nineteen, with every illness that's happening today, is that the economically vulnerable people who are working minimum wage jobs are living paycheck to paycheck, which is a huge percent of the world, are really suffering the most. So. If someone who's working minimum wage is feeling sick or their kids are feeling sick but they can't afford childcare, they still go to work and they have to send their kids to school. Great, like you're going to spread illness this way because they don't have another option. There's no safety net. Um, When businesses do close, people lose their income and they just don't have any money and how are you supposed to pay rent and buy groceries? Most dramatically, 
that's in lower middle income countries across Africa or India where it's almost impossible to exercise the social distancing. Like we are so lucky to have our own spaces and to have grocery stores that are still operating and to have enough money to be able to go and get groceries because I mean, yes, in Canada, in England, in the United States as well, people don't have savings accounts or the ability to stockpile. But then you've got this like added layer of um, huge extended families living together and you can't isolate from one another or you're living not just paycheck to paycheck, but just day to day. You don't have a place to put food. You can't afford canned goods, right? That's a very different life. Um, and it's same in North America or Europe with homeless communities. And it's really hard to know what countries are going to be able to do for those people. In Toronto, in Ontario, they're repurposing like 200 room hotels for the homeless communities. They've got like one center in Scarborough where if you have symptoms, you go and they test you, they diagnose you, and then they isolate you in one of these rooms in the hotels. But it costs like $200 a night for food, treatment, care, laundry, whatever. And so it's a huge investment. And I think we're seeing a lot of communities coming together and I have this weird sort of grinchy thought all the time, which is like, yeah, obviously we can do this it's like why aren't we already doing it like why does it have to be this like threat of global pandemic for people to just sort of be decent and i understand that corporations are for profit and therefore they will do what is in their best interest to be profitable and i get that it's just extremely frustrating to be like okay but you could be producing necessary supplies like paying your workers or doing all these things that are vital for you know the world to exist and you just don't and also just just one thing while we're talking about uh, communities coming together. I have noticed that that's becoming more and more politicized here. Like social distancing, at least in the UK, is is becoming very much about British values and mm-hmm. what it means to be British and keeping calm and carrying on. Like this is probably the closest to a wartime propaganda effort that we're going to see in our lifetime. It's not like Canadians aren't doing these like nice gestures, help your elderly neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. But this idea of like rallying behind mm-hmm. in this specific way is well, just very different. It's not that it doesn't it's exist. Just it's just different. In the U.S., it's never going to come from above. That's the difference. No. Now we've got Trump saying, I've got the most followers on Facebook. Like, it doesn't exactly inspire, inspire unity. But I wonder to what extent that's part of that effort on, on the part of government and other institutions here to really become that rallying point for people and make it almost, um, make it almost shameful or socially somehow a misstep to deviate from social distancing. And, like, I think that works really effectively, like that, that shame-slash-guilt dynamic. Yeah. It does, and it's upsetting that we just don't have that capacity for that dynamic in the United States. There's, there is something to be said for everybody coming together to support each other in a time of economic and social and emotional and whatever need, and there is something to be said for corporations to support people. Uh, but then, of course, there's also economic stimulus packages that are coming from governments, and it's going to be a big impact globally, not just making those packages and distributing them and seeing how those are going to work but also just in general like we're shutting down the economies of major major countries um and we don't really know what that's going to look like predictions right now are that it's already going to be worse than what happened in 2008 with the major depression which we refuse to call a depression but like we don't we don't know yet and i would imagine that 
this maps really similar to what happened in 1918. However, I also imagine that's super hard to extricate from post-war issues. I think it will be interesting to see how the fact that like it's going to be a global recession. Everybody is affected by this. So does that mean that we'll all be in it together? It'll be interesting. It's it's such a chain reaction, like when people aren't able to work. It's like now they're talking about pushing through legislation that will keep people from getting evicted during this time. Yeah. Which is, you know. Yeah. Which, um, again, was sort like, of was the cause of the 2008 recession. So like, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this says that there's just these, these awful things, these awful repercussions that have nothing to do with health, although there are also going to be health repercussions that have nothing to do with COVID, right? Like people with pre-existing conditions, mental health, all these things, they're going to suffer, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and without a doubt. Um, but they also have these really terrifying reflections of what happened in 1918 that sort of is like, yeah, we've made all these advances, but at the same time, we're ill-equipped, right? So we've got this floating infirmary that just came into New York City Harbor from the U.S. government. And it's like, okay, we saw that. Like, it's very old school. It's called the USS Comfort. And I was like, nothing could feel more early 1900s than the USS Comfort to me. We literally have something called the Nightingale Hospital. Oh, God. See? Yes. I read a horrifying story the other day of an ice skating rink in Spain that was being used as a makeshift morgue. Like, they were putting bodies on ice. Uh, One might say stacking them like cordwood. The point being, we're still woefully unprepared in many of the same ways, and that's really alarming. And and that influences how we are treating the disease and how we're viewing the disease because, again, there's so little knowledge and so little deep understanding of how we can deal with it, and people are scared of it being blamed on them. And you see that with – I mean, we we're calling it the Spanish influenza because of Spain – not having its news being censored. And that has that weird reflection on Trump and others trying to dub the pandemic the Chinese virus, which has clear similarities, although fortunately is being met with more cries about how racist that is in 2020. Uh, One thing that I think will change is the way that we treat other people people the way we interact with each other even aside from social distancing is going to change drastically like I went for a walk the other day and I passed this group of like like cyclists like the really intense ones that have their little hats and their spandex and they're like 60 year old men and it's very charming and they were like all circled up talking about like why would someone beat up someone else with the virus because then you would be touching them and then you would get infected (laughs) coming back from said walk it was cold out so I sneezed in the appropriate manner into my arm, et cetera, et cetera, right before I got in the elevator. And this woman got on with us, but she heard me sneeze and she panicked, right? She like wedged herself in the corner and was trying to like <laughs> breathe through her little dog that she was carrying. And I Aww. felt so bad, but also like, this is the new reality, right? If someone coughs or sneezes, you're kind of like, <laughs> Not to mention when, when you cough or sneeze and you immediately start to think about how you're gonna die oh 100 (laughs) percent. if i feel even a little scratch in my throat or i cough or something like i sniffled earlier i blew my nose and i was like that's it for me yeah like that this is the end as it's become really clear how contagious the virus actually is and as people have come to terms with the fact that we're all probably gonna get it at some point or maybe have already had it like the disease has lost some of its power and some of its fear yeah i think i think i've it's part of like settling into this self-isolation thing right because now we've got like a habit of it 
were a little bit more like, okay, I've done what I need to do and I have habitualized the practices, the public health practices that will keep me safer because I'm safe in my space. Like when I'm in the house, I'm like, okay, I'll touch my face. Like everything's fine. I'll just read the news. This is weird. But then as soon as some new element is introduced, I'm like, absolutely not. I cannot handle it. (laughs) But part of that is about your own mental preparedness and your own comfort zone. Like if it makes you feel emotionally, psychologically better. Then go to town with the bleach. Bleach everything. Let's see. So... We talked about this a little bit about how, you know, how this event was treated in the past versus the way that we look at it today. And I think that point of the Spanish flu being the forgotten epidemic is really relevant, right? Because like, yes, it was 100 years ago, but it has these clear repercussions and lessons learned that we could have taken away from it. And it was tragic and it was traumatic. And it that meant that people really didn't want to think about it or in some ways, I think, learn from it. And yes we've become more prepared from pandemics like this we've driven advances in science like you talked about vaccinations and being proud of them and we've learned and we've learned about human behavior but in other ways we've wanted to sort of put behind us all this devastation that came out of it these stacks of bodies it's like senseless death of young people that you know was a whole generation but i think also that preparedness and awareness seems to be kind of cultural And so all these areas that have had epidemics that really severely impacted them more recently, where the population is really tightly packed in, seem to have, for the most part, done a pretty good job of controlling the pandemic because they learned from experience out of necessity and they acknowledge this threat. But counterintuitively, the U.S. seems to have this attitude that they're almost like invulnerable to this kind of large scale harm. And again, I say this as technically a U.S. citizen, so no one can get mad at me. What do you mean technically? Well, I don't live there anymore. I am a citizen. I am a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but like we, we seem to have refused to prepare for things that we were warned were coming, right? There was a playbook. There was a plan. There were resources. And all of that was nixed in the years coming up to this emergency. And they refused to learn not only from our own experience in 1918 and SARS and Ebola and HIV, but we also haven't learned from the more immediate experiences of these other countries. And it's not that we didn't do anything, but we didn't exactly react in this lightning quick way than a lot of other people did because they were like, we saw what happened. You need to shut it down. Otherwise, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't feel that that was there was that strong of a reaction. And that seems just similar to the way it happened during the Spanish flu. I think in a lot of ways that goes back to my point about mastery over disease. I I do think that for a lot of people, especially after that WHO um, eradication plan for smallpox, a lot of people decided that our problems with disease were over and we were proven wrong over and over again. But that still ended up being the overarching narrative. And I think for a lot of people, there is still this, this deeply held belief that if there is something wrong with you there is a cure yeah like if you present yourself at a hospital someone will help you and you will survive and I think that really comes down to the narratives that we choose to remember yeah where have we succeeded yeah to remember the things that uh portray us in a favorable light yeah and I think that's where it has its reflections in our the current rhetoric in a lot of countries to describe this as a war right you're trying to frame this as this positive unified fight 
that we're fighting because people feel like they can't control it. There isn't positive messaging here and we're fighting a war and people have to contribute to the war effort and, you know, stiff up our lips on never sets in the UK. And then, but in the United States, you know, you've got, this is the battle that we're fighting Mm -hmm. and everybody needs to be a part of that battle and we're going to win and we can defeat it because right now, what else can you do besides stay home? There's nothing you can control right now. And that's hard. That's really hard. That's not new rhetoric either. You see that a lot with cholera epidemics and other epidemics that have a sanitation component to them because that is an element that you can control. Even if your version of sanitation is completely racial in its origin, if there is an illusion of control, then that language of mobilizing your forces to combat it becomes all the more powerful because it's seen as the necessary steps that you're taking in this campaign. Yeah. And the, I think the weirdest one, and actually Trudeau did it in his speech today, and I hate it, is, you know, your grandparents had to fight to save your country. They had to deploy to a foreign land and they had to fight and lose their lives. And all you have to do is stay home to win this war. Uh, sorry, he's not wrong, but also I really don't appreciate the guilt trip and he comes from a French-Canadian family. I come from a French-Canadian family. We both know our grandparents didn't do shit. Yeah, like, cool it. It's a, I'm very resentful of it and all this, like, well, millennials don't want to stay home. Eh. I'm, I think <laughs> m- the majority of millennials that I know are more than content to stay home for as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell me your grandmother's story. Okay, so I was on the phone with my grandmother, I guess it was last week sometime, and apart from trying to convince her to not go to the grocery store, which took like an hour, she was telling me that she'd grown up with her parents talking about the Spanish flu because a lot of her family had suffered from it, obviously, because it was everywhere. And Mm -hmm. she was saying that all of the measures that are being put in place were so reminiscent of the stories that her parents were telling her. Like, this woman is 85 years old. Crazy. There you go. That is weird. I like the way family members are dealing with this, too. Like, honestly, I think my parents are being more social than they ever have been. They'll call me and be like, well, we had a Zoom cocktail hour, and then we did this on Zoom, and then we did this. But they also have a lot of friends and family in France. And I get, like, seven forwards, like, WhatsApp forwards from my dad every day now of, like, truly hilarious French memes and videos about COVID-19 and being like isolated and staying at home. And I love them. They're amazing. You are holding out on me. Please send them along. I, want I will to see forward them. them to you. They will make you laugh. They're really, okay. really good. Some lighthearted notes to finish us off here. Yeah. Spanish flu for me, it always has, and it still does highlight the inherent vulnerabilities of globalization and what that means and sort of that that issue of like, did it take a global pandemic to remind us why histories of disease are valuable and worth remembering? Um, and that's something that's being discussed pretty extensively uh, amongst me and my peers. Like, what can we bring to this discussion? What is the role of the historian here? Should we even really be weighing in? Because like, we specialize in the retrospective and we are currently living through this. Like how can we possibly do good history and do good analysis when we are living through this along with everybody else? I'm not sure if I feel comfortable making all of the comparisons that I have during this entire episode, but I'm doing it anyway because I figure this is my take right now and I reserve the right to change it later. Like this is not a static conversation. This is not even a static disease. Like we talked about waves. Who's to say there won't be waves of this disease 
I mean, we, we don't know, but we will see. And when we are eventually able to look back and study COVID in its proper context, we'll be able to have a conversation about that. So, like, there's no definitive answer to any of this, except to say that past epidemics tell us about societies of the past rather than of the present, but that the comparisons, I think, are still worth making, even though no two contexts or diseases will be identical. Yeah, I I think the interesting thing about what we're seeing now is that, yeah, there's a global... We saw in 1918, globalization was really starting. There was so much movement of people and information and things across borders, and that has just been ramped up to the nth degree during this pandemic. And... Yes, they're the negatives of, well, okay, that took disease all around the world. But the positive is that we're so interconnected, and that means supply chains, economies, but also people and daily life and information, which is positive and negative. We're seeing a lot of misinformation, and I hope that we've done our best to try and filter through that and only give things that we know to be true to the best of our abilities. But there's also all these things like, yeah, Zoom Hangouts and, you know, that silly little app that we use where you can play games and video chat your house friends. Party. House I party. I love house party. Which, like, I'm seeing people adding it from my contacts that are from all over the world and all walks of my life. Oh, yeah. And all age groups as well, which when, is why. Yes. Like, my dad has it now. <laughs> we house partied all together. It was hilarious. Like, there's all these different tools. You're totally right. We have the tools to spread panic and misinformation, but like those same tools are what's going to get us through this period of social distancing slash isolation. I can literally go online and look at the RNA sequencing of the novel coronavirus. Do I know what to do with that? Absolutely not. But I've seen it and it's cool, right? Like we can go on house party. We can play Scrabble online. We can, there's a million different things and sometimes that's overwhelming, but that's also a huge positive and that's incredible and people are coming together in that way a lot we've got our meditation apps we've got people doing yoga sessions we've got you know all these things and that that's huge and it's not the same it's not the same but it's maybe enough to get us through this and like we can endure this and we will endure this and it's not forever exactly would you like to tell me about your fermentation i would love to Okay, welcome to our finishing question, fermentation station. Possibly the thing I would argue both of us have been looking forward to most of all of this. <laughs> so my fermentation project right now is kombucha. Um, my two giant scobies in my one large jar of kombucha are healthy and fat, and they look like alien creatures. The way kombucha works is basically you have this disc scoby, which stands for SC of bacteria and yeast. <laughs> so it's not a SCOBY, it's a SCOBE. Oh, well, yeah. Nice. Love it. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I got a couple and I'm building two things. One is a hotel, which is where all my little weird alien discs live and reproduce so that I can make more kombucha. And another is like a giant four liter jar where I'm brewing the actual kombucha, which is basically just sugar and tea. So you brew it, you let it get as tangy as you like, and then you can re-bottle it and give it flavors, and then it gets bubbly and whatever, and then you drink it. Great. Good for your gut. Good for your brain. I don't know. It's good for my brain because I can talk about fermentation station. I have more of a problem with this than I did with describing the autopsy results. Strange. Probably because you know I'm going to drink it, whereas you know I'm not going to drink someone's mucus. 
ideally. I mean, I should hope <laughs> not. <laughs> now that's how you get COVID-19, folks. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's my fermentation update. Everyone's progressing well. I have prepared the next batch of tea and it will be made with white tea. And that's Ooh. all I have to report to you today. Right. So I had one fermentation disaster that I haven't told you about yet. <laughs> I checked on my kimchi yesterday and it was starting to grow things. So I had to throw it out. No. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what I did wrong. I don't think I got enough of the water out of the cabbage. So maybe next time salt more aggressively. That's a great rule of thumb, I think, to live life by. And then second one is actually a fermentation win, but it was also really irritating uh, because I've been trying for a number of days now to get my sourdough starter. I've been trying to get it more active because I'm trying to attempt my first loaf. Yay! But it wasn't really working, and I eventually figured out that it's because my flat is too cold. Mm-hmm. So actually, what's happened is that I, once I figured that out, I restarted my process. I fed the starter some lovely flour and water, and I perched it on top of my radiator next to my bed. So like picture this proper 1950s style like retro radiator. So I did that, and our, our heating is on a timer because we're students and we're broke. And it comes on at like 6.30, 7 a.m. So I was woken up this morning because my starter was fizzing so aggressively that it was hitting the lid. That's a great success. So I have really high hopes for this loaf. It's still chilling by the radiator again because success with sourdough in my household is directly tied to proximity to a radiator at exactly the right time. How many loaves have you made now? Eight. <laughs> okay, for context, everybody, Maya is allergic to gluten. <laughs> so the fact that she has made just... eight loaves and force-fed them to all of her roommates <laughs> should tell you how bored she is. Yes, but also what I like to do is that I make it and then I make them eat it and force them to describe the flavor, texture, smell, and other sensations associated with eating it in great detail. Isn't that worse? I feel like that's worse. Yeah, but then they're going to get fat and I'm not. <laughs> okay, it's all coming out now. I think that's a really good place to wrap it up. <laughs> yep, let's close it down. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. Maya.